Hey everybody, this is Pastor Matt Parra, Evangelism Director for the North New South Wales Conference, and we are here with Pastor Lyle Southwell in our All Things Evangelism podcast. This is our second installment of a series that we've begun last week, which is called Why Evangelism Doesn't Work. And you probably remember Pastor Boris Jovanoff from the Warners Bay Seventh-day Adventist Church and I discussed the topic of how identity in Jesus and identity in the Word of God drives mission and how we become more successful in mission when we allow God's word to define who we are and what we're called to do. So uh, I'm looking forward to a really good conversation with Pastor Lyle. He is one of our three conference evangelists, um, Sharissa Fong. Well, no, sorry. Sharissa Tarosian, Justin Tarosian, <laughs> and Lyle Southwell all participate together doing evangelistic outreach ministry on behalf of the membership of the North New South Wales conference. Lyle's been an evangelist for a while. Before we jump into like the subject matter, Lyle, which is doctrine versus Jesus, um, do you want to just maybe share a second about yourself, your evangelistic experience, what got you into the ministry of soul winning, what gave you a passion for, for reaching out for Christ? Sure. I, I, I guess I, I gained a passion for reaching out for Christ when I gave my heart to God when I was 15 years old. Yeah. Started with small groups, uh, Bible studies, those kind of things. We had several evangelistic programs that took place. You know, I come from Tasmania, took place in the uh, Hobart area. Absolutely inspiring, been keen about it ever since. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to be a part of, I think, 60-odd, probably going on 70 different evangelistic campaigns. Okay. Um, and yeah, there are a few things that I'm more passionate about in ministry than sharing the... The good news of Jesus Christ is death, burial, resurrection, and soon return uh, via public evangelism. Yeah. Fantastic, man. So you're a relatively good person. You're a relatively qualified person. A relatively good person. This podcast, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Relatively is an important word to to bring into play there because, you know, even Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So everyone, we do this podcast because you know, Lyle is passionate about evangelistic outreach. I've been uh, working in the outreach ministry space for the better part of 20 years. And uh, we want to be able to give you helpful hints, uh, as much wisdom as we possibly can to help our churches in North New South Wales be as evangelistic as possible and to be as successful as possible in their mission. Uh, for Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, as I said uh, briefly, our topic of discussion in the second installment of our series, Why Evangelism Doesn't Work, is entitled Doctrine versus Jesus. Now, I want to kind of set the stage a bit, and then I'm going to kick this conversation off by asking Lyle a question. In church land, I, I, I get a sense at times that there is unnecessary tension in people's minds between not every person by any means, but there is a narrative out there where uh, people communicate that the fundamental teachings of Scripture, as understood by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, are somehow in some way uh, conflicting with or contradictory to a real, fresh, and living experience with the person of Jesus Christ. So you'll hear, you'll hear phrases sometimes out there in church land that go like this. Hey, we uplift Jesus here, but not doctrine. Or we're united in Jesus, but not doctrine. Now, people can mean a lot of different things. Or the mantra, you know, doctrine divides. Yes. You know, heard that over and over again. Doctrine divides. Doctrine divides and Jesus brings together. Now, I want to to delve into that, 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 those understandings, those statements. And uh, I know just before we begin to, to jump into the subject and get hot and heavy, into things. I want to say that that language is a malleable thing and semantics can change and different people can mean different things by saying the same thing. So we know everybody who uses those kinds of terms and statements doesn't mean the exact same thing. But we want to talk today, does doctrine conflict with Jesus um, or have we created an artificial divide? And when we go out and preach the gospel, are there not supposed to be some doctrinal components to our preaching? Um, so we want to delve into the subject. And my first question to you, Lyle, is obviously, I was going to say, are you familiar with this? Is this part of your reality? Have you seen this out in the churches? Have you, have you, have you seen this mindset, this viewpoint? And at the same time, have you seen how, to some degree, to some extent, it can inhibit our evangelistic success? Most definitely. 
And, uh, you know, it comes from a number of different perspectives. You know, people have often asked me, why do we preach? Why, why do we pre- preach prophecy? Because prof- preaching prophecy is essentially preaching doctrine. Why don't you just preach Jesus? You know, there are so many other evangelists out there, great evangelists, and they just go out and they just preach Jesus. For instance, one person was once uh, talking to me and comparing um, what myself and other Seventh-day Adventist evangelists do with, say, Franklin Graham. And they're looking at Franklin Graham and saying he's having massive success and he's not preaching prophecy, he's preaching Jesus. So why don't you copy Franklin Graham rather than copying you know, other Adventist evangelists who are pre- preaching prophecy. So yeah, this is definitely something that is out there. It's a very valid question. I think it's a good question to ask and one that needs to be answered. Yeah. And there are a lot of different aspects to it. Where do you think the idea, this idea that we should uplift Jesus and not doctrine came from? But before we even address the subject itself and, and, and ask if that's a right way to think in the first place, where do you think the idea came from? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, if I actually stopped and thought about that, I'm thought I'm sure we would find it a long way back in the Bible. Um, but really, what it comes down to is human nature likes to push to extremes. We naturally don't find a balance. Yeah. Even though I am the most balanced person on the planet and I'm always dead center about everything. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, you know, if naturally. You want to find balance, when, whenever you look at yourself, that's the way you are. Everybody is balanced when they look at themselves. But human nature is not like that. No. Human nature pushes it one way or the other. And of course, the more somebody goes the opposite direction from you, the more you will go the other direction to try and draw them back towards some balance, which means that they will go further the other direction to try and draw you back towards some balance. And you end up, you know, miles apart. And we end up miles apart in our Christian experience and in our relationship with God and in the way that we do outreach. Yes. So people are naturally pendulous and tend to go one way or the other. So maybe this idea came about because there have been and there are people who are so fixated on right answers and coming to a place of like understanding on just an academic or intellectual level, but yet have no living, born again, spirit led experience with the person Jesus Christ. And so maybe people have observed that and seen that and said, hey, listen, I want none of that. I don't want a dry, formal, rigid, just purely ideas based religious experience, because what is, what is that? What is that of any use, you know? Sure, and, and, and the classic example is the Pharisees. Yep. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus are often held up as the classic example of people who knew their Bibles inside out, back to front and upside down and did to their best of their ability everything that was in the Bible, but they had no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the character of God. Yep. Now, you know that's a blanket statement that we often um, apply to the Pharisees and often unfairly right. because clearly there were many Pharisees who did not have that um, dry, doctrinal-based, you know, no relationship. There were many Pharisees out there who did have a genuine relationship with God and did respond to Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Acts talks about the Pharisees who, you know, gave their lives to Jesus Christ and became Christians. Yes, I was just reading uh, John chapter 12 the other day and it said many of the Pharisees believed on him, but they did not confess it because they were afraid and they were putting the perspectives of men above the perspectives of God. Now, what I find is interesting when we talk about the Pharisees as you know, our stereotypical um, doctrine-based followers of God who have no, you know, no love, no, no love, compassion. no connection, no compassion. What What's interesting to do is to then compare that with the disciples. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're going to find the disciples. They're going to come out on the day of Pentecost. They're going to preach with great power. Thousands of people are going to be one to Jesus Christ. 3,000 in one day. Turn the page, you're going to find, you know, 5,000, and it's just the men they counted. And then turn the page again. You find another instance where they're like, they couldn't even count how many gave their lives to Jesus Christ. We're going to find a tremendous uh, success of the gospel. And if we're going to look for balance in our Christian experience, then that's where we should look. Mm -hmm. And we need to ask ourselves the question when the disciples came out, out from the upper room experience. They went out on the day of Pentecost filled with the Holy Spirit. What was the message that they carried? Did they just stand up and just preach Jesus Christ? Right. Or did they preach doctrine? Did they completely reject everything that, you know, may have felt in any way pharisaical? It's interesting to read the uh, in Acts chapter 2 and look at the Acts model of evangelism. Yes. 
And so we'll go to Acts chapter 2 here. Uh, verse 42, it's going to give you the key to how to be successful in evangelism. In verse 42, the Bible says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine yes. and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayer. So essentially what you've got is three ingredients to you know, the Acts model of evangelism that are going to give true success. Doctrine, food, and prayer. Those three things go together, and they're the, they're the three things here. And so what you notice is that the disciples have not rejected doctrine. Right. They are preaching doctrine. They are preaching Jesus Christ at the center of the doctrine. Um, and you can read that in Acts chapter 2 right there. But doctrine hasn't disappeared. Doctrine is front and center here. Doctrine is not the problem. Right. Jesus is not the problem. Too much Jesus is not the problem. Too much doctrine is not the problem. The problem is when we try and separate the two. That's right. You know, it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives his most, his most scathing rebuke. This is going to connect to what you were just saying. He gives his most scathing rebukes of the Pharisees. He says, you are whitewashed sepul- sepulchers or otherwise you're really shiny. You're really shiny caskets. Uh-huh. You're basically, you know, like you're like a casket at a funeral, and inside there's a rotting corpse, but on the outside it's beautiful. You know, that's a pretty gnarly insult. I mean, you've got to really think a lot to come up with a better insult than that for someone else's religious experience, right? Like, so Jesus, I mean, he was not mixing words in Matthew 23 when he characterized the religious experience of the of the leaders in the church. <clears throat> in his day. And in verse 3, it's interesting because he, he makes this statement to, to sincere believers. He says, the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. Do what they say, but not as they do. So his That's criti- very significant. So his critique of the Pharisees was not the fact that they were really concerned with doctrinal truth. It was that they were really concerned with doctrinal truth and at the same time not concerned with being genuine and true and faithful and allowing that to convert their hearts and convert their souls to so that they would have a, a real living connection with God. So they were just using religious teaching as a pretext to exalt themselves and to gain power and control over others. His 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 finding fault with the disciples was or with the Pharisees was not, wow, they're really concerned with what is doctrinally true. I hate that. And so they're, they're against God because they care about what's doctrinally true. Jesus never took that position when he was critiquing the Pharisees. He was just simply saying, they teach what's true, but they don't live the truth. So, so the words that I speak, Jesus says in John 6, 63, are spirit. That is to say, they're, they're principal truths that are spiritual and transcendent, uh, but they're also life. So they're life principles that should be acted out and should be applied and uh, are practically real and useful, you know? So I just wanted to affirm what you're saying there about Acts chapter two, is that you've got these, these, these disciples who heeded the word of Jesus. That's right. They were, they were, and by the way, it's interesting because I would say that on a theological level, Jesus was a Pharisee. In that when- Yes, he, he when was he, not a Pharisee. He, he was not, not a Sadducee. He was not a Sadducee. He, he, he took uh, upon, I would say he, he took the theological side on doctrinal issues. He, he'd be considered doctrinally speaking, a true blue theological conservative. And you find that Jesus, you know, he's quoting from all of the books of the Bible, not just the books of Moses. Right. You know, the Sadducees would, re- would reduce themselves. To, yeah, so yeah, very that's clearly. Right. They were higher critics, man. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's no. it. Now, there's a great passage in Matthew 23, 23, where it says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin, that's in, on, your t- on, on your herb garden, and have omitted the weightier matters of the Lord, judgment, mercy, and faith, and then he goes on, these you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. Undone. You know, so he's standing up and saying, okay, you're paying tithe on your herb garden and that's a good thing. <laughs> you're right. Don't stop There's doing that. wrong with that. Yeah, nothing. don't stop doing that. Is That's the right thing to do. Right. But you need to bring into your experience more than just the outward actions. You need to have, you know, mercy um, mercy, judgment, and the f- faith. As the a- fundamental weighty matters of the law. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting because, you know, the way that some people approach faith in, in criticizing those who would be serious about doctrine and serious about obedience and serious about um, ordering their life in such a way that they're, that they're pleasing to God. Like the, the people who kind of look down on that, who, who dismiss that as super and, and shallow and pharisaical, 
it's ironic because in no other area in life besides religion would they think that way. For example, the same people who would say, oh, those people serious about their religious experience and, and serious about the teachings of scripture and who are really concerned with what is true uh, and what is right and, and both what is right in how we should behave and right in how we should think and believe about God, they would, they would say that, that's, that's shallow and silly in the religious sphere. But when you talk about, say, sports or careers, anyone who took their career so seriously that they were meticulous and disciplined and, and really focused and committed, they would say, well, that's admirable. Because look at all the heart. Look at all the passion that person is putting into their profession. Look at all the passion that person's putting into their training in this particular sport. You know, And, and so it's, it's kind of a, a bit odd to me that people would make this arbitrary separation between what is weighty in the law and what is peripheral and what is, what is smaller. Because Jesus himself says, um, he that is faithful in that which is least is also faithful in that which is much. So he doesn't separate the small and the big or what is perceived to be small and what is perceived to be big as far as religious duty and whatnot. And so I, I find, Lyle, nowhere in scripture where, where a personal relationship with a personal God is, is divided from and separated from the idea of being passionate about what is doctrinally true. And well, it's, it's impossible I, I to do that, so. I don't see that separation in Scripture. I have no. a pastor friend who, when I first was converted, said, he said, the devil separates what we, so, sorry, the, we separate what God doesn't. Yes. We separate. We, we love to separate things and put them into, you know, they're separate boxes where yes. they don't touch each other. You know, it's the same with justification and sanctification. How do you separate the two? Mer- yeah, sorry, mercy, justice. You know, love, truth. It's, we, by the way, I think it's fair to, to divide subjects of Scripture for the purpose of education, for the purpose of teaching. So sure. hey, let's talk about faith today. Let's talk about obedience today. Let's talk about mercy today. Let's talk about grace today. Let's talk about faithfulness, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like, so you can teach a subject and you can teach its relationship to other subjects. And that's fine for academic purposes, for, for, for just the elevating of the mind. But when it comes to the practical outworking of religious faith, there's not that clean little divide in stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like It's like the body, the system of the body. It's like, it's like the same as a system of belief. Like there's interconnected parts that are all different and distinct in a sense, but they combine together to make one body. And so you know, the idea that, that we uplift Jesus and that we're saved in the person of Jesus and that we're reconciled to God through Jesus, that idea should in no way, shape, or form be... Uh, placed in conflict or in tension against the idea that um, the Bible says that uh, we should preach the word. We should be instant in season and out of season, reproving, exhorting, and correcting with all long-suffering and patience because the day will come when people will not be able to endure sound doctrines. It's right the way through the Bible. Yeah, you know, right. All so, scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for, for doctrine. doctrine. And you the, know, if it wasn't important, why would God put it in the Bible? No, that's right. And, and, and it's so funny because to me, I find so many, I'm a, I'm a fiercely logical person where I feel that when I'm, when I'm listening to people, I filter what they say through scripture and, and through just logic. I look for what is, I'm, I'm somewhat of a, I look for contradictions until I can find no more and then I settle on what I think. Does that make you yeah, know yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's like if I can't, uh-huh. so I argue against myself all the time. Like I'm like, okay, this is a thought that I have. Let me challenge that thought with this thought. And then I kind of reduce everything down. Okay, I can no longer find contradictions. So when I'm listening to people sometimes, I do that, you know, kind of habitually. So when I hear people say, look, Jesus is all, right? Yes, sure. Jesus is all. Yep, and Jesus we, is the one. Jesus is the one. And we, we focus on nothing but Jesus. We're lost in Jesus. And doctrine means nothing to us because we just have Jesus. The first thing that my overly logical mind thinks is did you know you're kind of making a doctrinal statement <laughs> very much like, a doctrinal statement. so it's kind of circu- a totally doctrinal it's statement. a doctrinal statement which is fine yeah so doctrine just simply means teaching and what's interesting about that statement is it's a statement you can't criticize even if it makes you feel uncomfortable you can't criticize it because the reality is is that jesus is at the center and the essence of every doctrine that there is that's right and this is one of the great, uh, in fact, I would say this is the greatest argument that there is against, um, say, for instance, evangelical eschatology. So if you look at e- evangelical end time events where you've got this, you know, your seven year tribulation yep. and you've got the Antichrist does this and you've got, you know, the secret rapture and you've got all of these very, very creative events. And these are 
evangelical doctrines. Right. Now, the greatest argument against those doctrines, and there are many arguments against them that you can use from a theological perspective, but the greatest argument against those doctrines is the fact that they teach you nothing about who Jesus is. Right. They teach you nothing about his character. They teach you nothing about the plan of salvation. They teach you nothing about the great controversy. All they are is a creative and exciting series of events. Nothing more. Wow. And the moment that you take Jesus out of the doctrine, then you know that you have false doctrine. It's a, it's, it's a principle right. of, in, of prophetic interpretation right there that just brings so much light and beauty to our Adventist message. Right. Um, in that we can stand up with any of our uh, prophetic subjects, any of the you know our end time subjects, and Jesus Christ is front and center, and every doctrine tells you something about Jesus Christ. Yes. So is there is there something happening here, Lyle, where certain people have unnecessarily removed the person of Jesus from their doctrinal teaching, and then other people have observed that and said, okay, well now I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater and just dismiss doctrine as a whole. Yes. So it's like this this false approach to teaching doctrine has happened in the church and so therefore people have concluded well doctrine's bad and thus but, you get these two extremes developing where people start to pull different directions and they pull harder and harder and harder and further and further and further apart right and uh, it doesn't it should not be that way no no not at all so it also comes down to and sorry for for butting in there no, but no, it no, also no. comes down to different people and the reality is that we are all very different from each other yep. and we connect with God God in different ways and we don't often respect the way that other people connect with God right. now i find this when i read for instance the 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 the, the epistle writers of the new testament and just and just rather than you know reading through and looking at what they say just you know, build a picture of what kind of a connection with God does this person have? And you can see it coming through in their writings. And, you know, you look at you look at John, for instance, and no one would question that John has a very relational connection with God. Um, if you compare that with Jude, yeah. you, know, you read the book of Jude, this guy, just, he comes out swinging he, and yeah. he just doesn't stop until he gets to the end of his book. And you kind of read that and you think, you know what? In modern Christianity, I'm talking about modern Jude's Christianity. Jude's like the gangster rapper of the Bible. He is. <laughs> he he totally through. is. Yeah. You know, he comes out on stage and just, 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 just he pulls out two everybody. big six guns, cocks them back, and then just starts blazing at the audience. Oh. And I look at modern Christianity, and I would say that John would be very popular today. I look at modern Christianity, I'd say, you know, if we had Jude come and preach in our church... At least the epistles of John would be very popular. Probably the, the Gospel of John, there's some pretty heady stuff and controversial Well, here's stuff. the thing, here's the thing. It's where, it's where basically Jesus it's, says... It's, it's John's reputation that would make him very popular today, yeah. rather than what he actually says. Yeah. Because when you read what he actually says, man, he says some strong stuff. Yeah. In fact, he says stuff... There's more conflict in the book of John than in the rest of the Gospels, like he highlighted. Says, he says he uses stronger language than Jude does. Mm. But he has, this, he has this reputation as the disciple that Jesus loved. Yeah. And as soon as you throw the word love in there, you get a section of society that goes all gooey. Oh, and yeah. it's like, oh, this is great. Let's, let's, let's follow John. <laughs> well, you actually need to read what John has to say because right. you know, John talks about wrath without mixture. And you will never find Jude going that far. Yes. Even though Jude comes out swinging from one end to the other. Um, and so, you know, you've got very different personalities here. They are all expressing Jesus Christ and they are all expressing doctrine, but they're doing it in different ways. And sometimes we don't recognize the ways in which people are expressing Jesus Christ. Yep. And so if you find someone in your church that loves to study, you know, the fine details of prophecy or the sanctuary, whatever it might be, you know, we get all threatened by that and like, oh, they're just into doctrine. No, they're not all just into doctrine. They are all into Jesus Christ because Jesus is at the center of all of that. Well, it comes from Jesus. It's the Spirit. Yes. The holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, Jesus, Jesus says, the scriptures testify of me. So the Holy Spirit was testifying of Christ through everything he said in scripture. And to carefully study that is to carefully study Jesus and of course, you don't want to just make it an academic exercise where it's all about just facts. Of course, there's a relational element and an experiential element, and you're studying for application, and you're studying for relationship, and you're studying as a pursuer of truth, practical and 
theoretical, but at the same time, uh, that is given to us as a testimony of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you love Jesus and if you uplift Jesus, why wouldn't you value that? There's, it makes no sense to say that I uplift Jesus, but I ignore everything that he delivered to me through the power of his spirit about himself. All the doctrines, all the teachings, all the truths. Obviously, if, if it just makes sense. If God cared enough to share it, you should care enough uh, to believe it and to study it and to affirm it. And uh, I think this is this is something that once again, it, it just it just kind of astounds me that there that, that there are so many people that would put unnecessary uh, divide between things that Scripture all affirms. It's not either Jesus or doctrine. It's both. It's a, it's a wonderful blend and mix together of Jesus and, and fundamental teaching about Jesus. And so if I love Jesus, why wouldn't I love what he teaches me? And Obviously, because is... it's important. And, and also, if, I'm, if I love God and if I'm jealous for God, why wouldn't I take offense to the fact that people misrepresent him by teaching things that are wholly untrue, that have their source in pagan ideas and cruel practices? And I think this is one of the harsh realities we Seventh-day Adventists just have to kind of confront especially in countries uh, like America and Australia, where we have luxurious lifestyles that tend to kind of affect our theological perspective sometimes and make everything nice and sweet and easy. We're, we're living in, a, in the midst of a great controversy where the Christian church over the millennia has been polluted by pagan ideas and teachings and false doctrines and false you know, beliefs. And if I love God and if I love Jesus, wouldn't I want to, to some extent, teach what's true about him? You know, doctrinally speaking, yeah, yeah. teach the truths that actually come from him, the truths that actually express who he is and that actually uh, matter real, for real, you know, versus these false, bizarre, paganized teachings, you know. Anyway, so I guess what I'm saying, just in short, don't lose your thought, is just you cannot say, like you cannot say and be consistent. I love Jesus. He's the center, center of my life. I have a deep and meaningful relationship with him. And he's, he's the supreme Lord of my life. And then utterly disregard what he teaches you in his word. And this is the great thing about being a Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. Because every one of our doctrines is centered on Jesus Christ and uplifting his character and who he is and the great controversy. Yes. There's a great controversy theme that, that winds, winds its way through every doctrine that we have. Um, is just is just incredible. But here's a question for you, Matt. Yes. Do you enjoy a good testimony? Someone's going to share a testimony. Uh, you enjoy a good testimony. Always. Absolutely. We all always enjoy a good testimony. <laughs> yes. Um, and how would you feel if uh, if Jesus walked in here into the studio right now and he was like, "Hey, uh, if you got half an hour, can I sit down in front of the mic and share my testimony?" How would you be feeling at that particular point? Yeah. Well, come on. I mean, yeah. I, I, We'd I, all just I, shut I, up, I, wouldn't we? I, I, my my jaw would drop and I'd start to drool. And, <laughs> Amen. You know, like yeah. Okay. So let's think about this then. And, um, you know, you go to Revelation chapter 1, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. Here you have the most detailed doctrinal book that there is in the Bible. Yes. The Revelation, which is central to our message as Seventh-day Adventists. And it begins with these words, this is the revealing of Jesus Christ. This is his personal testimony. Name me another book in the Bible that starts that way. Now, I understand that every book in the Bible is about revealing Jesus Christ. Every book in the Bible is his personal testimony. But I just want to highlight that this is the only book that actually begins by saying, okay, this book's going to reveal Jesus Christ to you. This is his testimony. This is the one that he's signified. In other words, he signed his name at the bottom of it. This is, name me another book where it says, you know, he signed off on it, right? And, and it gets better. When the epistles, the messages to the churches are like from him directly. This is like Jesus. It's like the, Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians. Yes. He wrote the epistle to the, the, the two epistles to the Thessalonica, Thessalonians and, and the church in Thessalonica. This, these epistles in Revelation 2 and 3 are coming directly. They came, John wrote them down, but they come from the mouth of Jesus. That's right. So you've got, you've got a book that claims this is going to reveal Jesus. He's signed it himself. He's got his autograph on it. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty special. 
He claims it as his own personal testimony. Then in verse 3, he pronounces a blessing on anyone who reads it and understands it. These are all factors that are unique to the book of Revelation. Then it goes further because verse 4 and 5, I just want to highlight this. You know, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace be unto you. From, so who the book is coming from? From him which is, which was, which is to come. And from the seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit. So and from the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. You've got the Godhead mentioned here. How often do you have all three members of the Godhead mentioned in the Bible collaborating with each other? Right. You know, it's like five. Yep. And so here you've got the most detailed, the most doctrinal book in the Bible. And Jesus highlights the fact that this is going to reveal himself. He's put his autograph on it. Um, It's his own personal testimony. Um, there's a special blessing pronounced on anyone who reads, understands it, and follows it. And then just if you weren't sure that this is important to study and it's (laughs) going to reveal him, it's like, well, this is actually a collaboration. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all all three of us getting together right here. Hey, powerful. Yeah, totally. It's a total blend. It is. It is. It is, you know, and and, and I think it comes back to part of the problem is that, um, and there's something else I want to highlight if I could. Yeah, please. Yeah, of course. The danger comes in when we take Jesus out. The, the problem is that, um, and, and this is where particularly the evangelicals have come unstuck because they've taken Jesus out of the book of Revelation and just created a sequence of events. events. Just crazy events that are dramatic and exciting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we don't, we must not miss the point. We must not miss the point that within the book of Revelation, there is a lot of detail and a lot of history and a lot of events that are taking place. Mm-hmm. And so you find some people, because they don't find every verse, and I don't mean to say this disrespectfully, I don't mean any disrespect at all, but because they don't find every verse dripping with words about Jesus Christ, right? they're, they're like, well, this is a dry doctrinal book. This is not telling me about Jesus Christ. And they're missing the big picture because there is, you know, in my mind, no other book that reveals the great controversy like the book of Revelation does. Right. You know, and you can go through you know, Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9, and apart from your introduction and apart from your conclusion at the end, your meat in the middle has no reference to Jesus Christ, has one passing reference to his church, and that's it. And you can go through verse after verse after verse and there's all of these historical events that are taking place and, you know, you've got dates in there and you've got fulfillments and you've got all this kind of stuff. And, you know, for a history geek like myself, I can totally geek out on all of the history. I'm just like, I'm in my element right here. And because you have, you know, large swathes of the book that are full of details, people tend to reject the study of it because it's not giving them that warm, fuzzy feeling, because they're not a historian like myself. Mm-hmm. And so we need to accept the fact and accept the reality that Jesus gives us lots of details and lots of history and lots of, you know, minutia even. Yes. Because those things reveal himself. Well, and also, yeah, amen. And also, you know, to, to a second, like, additional thought to your to your thought is that. Well, because he cares about you and he wants to communicate to you things that must shortly come to pass. And so God knows the end from the beginning and those he loves are journeying through time and he wants to communicate to them information that's going to help them and keep them safe um, and undeceive them, if you will. You know, and I think this is something that I, I see with my kids. My children love to love me on their terms, but there's things I need to teach them. There's things I need to say to them and I need them to listen to me. And these things are not going to always make them feel warm and cozy. They're not going to always flatter them and, and, and indulge them in what they want and what they feel. And I, and I don't want to, and I'm not making an accusation or judging anyone's motives or I don't know anyone's heart, but I do think that there is a segment out there of people who have their, their preferred teachings of scripture and they're in a sense like my kids who only want to hear certain things from dad. If you understand, so there's just certain messages they want to hear from dad. Uh, and, and I think in this whole uh, discussion about Jesus and doctrine, there's just certain people who just want to hear sermons on the synoptic gospels. And so what they do is they create this narrative that anything outside of the sphere of what they like is not Christ centered. 
But that's not, that's not like not Christ-centered as defined by the Bible. It's just unchrist. It's like not Christ-centered as defined by them, because they That's just right. prefer to hear certain sermons from certain sections of the Bible on certain subjects, and they want to kind of like uh, sacramentalize their preferred choices of what to hear from the Bible and what to study from the Bible. So I feel, to some degree, it's it's a little bit of a like <laughs> how do you say this? It's a little bit of Pharisaical. <laughs> in, in, in a like Jesus-centered kind of a way. It's you must teach from Scripture what I prefer to have taught, and I want my you know preferred doctrinal emphasis uh, uh, made, or else I'm just going to style you as unchristlike or uh, not focused on Jesus. Do you understand the basic point? The Absolutely. Point? And, it's where, and it's where we find often um, people get stuck on a particular gospel. And there are a bunch of gospels that float around amongst, amongst Christianity. There are a bunch of gospels that float around amongst seventh day adventists and it's and, and what i what i what i call or liken it to is people who get fixated on one aspect of the gospel yes. and they make it their whole gospel yes and so you know in the adventist church you have the gospel of the health message health message is great but you find some people that's the only thing they can think that's about right. it's the only thing they can talk about it's the only thing that they can preach about um, and, and you know, and you can go on down through. There's a whole bunch of different versions of it. Yeah. And I'm just using that one as an example where they take something good, but they do it to the exclusion of everything else. That's right. Well said. That's so well said. Okay, here's check this out. In the last section of our of our time frame, I want to just highlight some messages from Revelation because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's you right. could say that it, it, it reveals Jesus for sure. You could also say that. It, it, uh, it's the revelation given to Jesus that he gives to us and it reflects him, you know, but it's, it's for us about the, whatever. Um, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and there's things contained in it that I want to just emphasize real quickly that I think are important to this discussion because we're having a discussion about why evangelism doesn't work. And I'm, I'm putting forth through us doing this podcast the idea that I'm, I'm making the case that the put, pitting doctrine against Jesus is one of the reasons why evangelism doesn't work. I'm, yeah. I'm submitting that to be a truth because it's separating what God does not. And it actually, um, it hinders our, our, how do I say this? It, um, it neutralizes our power. It, I think it really neutralizes us because we're preaching and we, whether we realize it or not, if you're just preaching doctrinal truths devoid of Jesus, and if you're just preaching Jesus and avoiding at all costs, doctrinal truth, you're not preaching the word as revealed from God. Now, if you trust God and if you believe in God, you need to preach the word, undistilled, preach it as it is, preach the text, preach what it says, preach the doctrines, preach the person of Jesus, preach everything the word of God has to say. That's where our power is. And if we just pick and choose what we're going to preach because it's what we prefer, then we're, we're not fully endorsed by God because that's not what God calls us to do. Uh, in the book of Revelation, I think, addresses this. And I want to just talk about certain texts. And then I want to talk about maybe a little bit, if we can, if, if, if we're led this way. We don't have to be led this way, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> sure. um, we can try, we can try, but we'll see how we go. But to talk about, practically speaking, a little bit more, how dividing doctrine and Jesus disempower us in evangelism, how it causes evangelism not to work. So uh, looking into the book of Revelation, you see... Jesus describing the history of Christianity in Revelation 12. So, um, and then Revelation chapter 13, and Revelation 12 talks about the persecutions, getting so fierce that Christianity has to kind of like back, true, true Bible faith has to kind of disappear from the public sphere. And Revelation chapter 13 covers some of the same ground, talks in more detail about how the devil does that through kind of paganized Christianity. And then how um, that just kind of, happens throughout the course of Christian history. And then at the end of time, there's this, you know, universal issue, this global issue. And then in Revelation chapter 14, you see a message that's tailor-made from God for the people living at the end of time. So you see the end time crisis in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, you see this paganized version of Christianity that's working in concert with these, you know, large political powers on planet earth. And there's this mark of the beast crisis, and there's this forced allegiance. And the world is accepting it. The world is capitulating to it. And the world, the world as a whole is falling sway to satanic forces and powers. Uh, and Revelation 12, 9 says the devil deceives the whole world. So the world is deceived. And when you're deceived, you don't know. You know, you, you don't know you're deceived. You, you don't, 
the essence of deception is you don't know you're deceived. So the world is deceived. The devil doesn't come out and tell you what he's doing. He doesn't show you what he's doing. He's not honest about what he's doing. And through the beast power of Revelation 13, he's deceiving the whole world and he's getting worship through this paganized, false kind of Christianity and whatnot. I'm saying a lot of things, but I'm just trying to set the stage as quickly sure. as possible. And then this message comes from God. So you've got this, this you know, universal apostasy, this universal falling away from God, this forced allegiance where people are accepting it and capitulating to it. And the whole world is, is under darkness, basically. And you can't buy or sell if you don't you know, join in. You, can't, you get killed if you don't join in. And this isn't just happening in one place. It's rich, poor, free, bond. Everyone on planet, planet Earth is, is involved in this end time issue. Um, there's an image erected to the beast. And, the, you know, and basically what ends up happening at the end of time around the world is what happened in Europe in the Middle Ages. You're just seeing a resurgence of that around the globe. Um, and then this message comes from God out of Revelation chapter 14. Um, and it's tailor-made for the people who are living through the circumstances of Revelation 13. It says, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. So the inference is there, don't fear the beast, don't fear his judgments, because I'm about to judge, and I'll judge the beast. You know? And uh, don't respect and regard and honor what that beast system is. Honor and regard what I am. Know me for who I am. You know, fear God, uh, honor God, revere God, know him for who he is, um, for the hour of his judgment has come. And that's the first angel's message in, in the beginning of it. But then the second angel's message, which comes from God, that's tailor-made for the people at the end of time, says Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So just, um, I want to put a few, stitch a few pieces of what I've just said together. And, and so just, just throwing in there, that please, yeah. this, this is the definition that the Bible in these passages given is giving to the everlasting gospel. That's right. And so if you're going to preach the gospel, this is this the message is, you preach. That's right. It's a doctrinal oh, message uh, that is described as the everlasting gospel. I'm People so, come to me and they're like, why don't you just preach yeah. the gospel? I'm like, okay, I will just preach the gospel. <laughs> Three angels' messages, no yeah. problem, let's go. Well, I'm so, I'm so glad that you said that because at the beginning of this podcast, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having, having the everlasting gospel. It doesn't say preaching. Gospel. It says he has the everlasting gospel to preach. That's right. Saying. So and how comes, and then he, he says comes, those three messages. Here comes the everlasting gospel. So those three messages are an expression for the people at the end of time of the everlasting good news of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. You can't, you can't evade that. And by the way, in, in this similar passage in Acts chapter 24, when Paul, it says, it says Paul is before some civil authorities and it says, He's preaching to them about the way in Jesus. And while he reasoned with them about judgment, sorry, 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 righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, they were trembling in fear. So just think about that. It says he's reasoning with the civil authorities about the way in Jesus. And what does he reason with them about? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. So there's no separation in not none Paul's whatsoever. Mind, and, and Luke's mind as he's writing Acts between these fundamental doctrinal truths and the way of Jesus. They're all part of the same package. Um, so anyway, so Revelation chapter 14, the first angel's message. Then the second angel's, angel's message says Babylon has fallen. In the context, what's Babylon? Well, Revelation 13, there's a confused beast. Bab Babylon means confusion. In Revelation 17, there's a prostituted woman, you know. So the same entity is described in two different figures an amalgamated beast that's confused and deranged and that's a facade for Satan and that extracts from the world worship for satanic agencies. It's, a, it's an agent of deception. And then God sends his message of truth. And as a component of God's message of truth to counteract all the error in the world at the end of time, as he preaches the everlasting gospel of who God really is is preached. It's fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Worship the creator as the creator. Uh, reject all of those doctrines, all of those teachings, all of those false understandings about God that's been proliferated on the world by this beast power. And then the second angel's message is Babylon, that beast power, and this prostituting, prostituted power of Revelation 17, it's fallen because it's made the whole world drunk. Now, now okay, just, just a quick thought if I can summarize, God help me. <laughs> to be drunk. Your sense is, is, is to be deceived. Mm -hmm. When I get drunk, I don't get drunk anymore, but when I've been drunk, what I notice is um, I enter into a, a false reality. My senses are numbed. Uh, my perception is changed. I think things that are not true. I feel things that are not true. I'm deceived. 
Um, so when you teach a, a teaching, just a, a false doctrine, a false teaching, and you, you, you promote it as truth, okay, that affects people similarly to the way that alcohol affects people. It does. So uh, <laughs> let's just say, hypothetically, I'm a doctor, and I tell you, and you know, I'm examining you, and you're found to have a terrible disease. Uh, and it's due to a certain, you know, and it's, it's, it, it's aggravated by a certain lifestyle habits that you have. And I say, you know, Lyle, you're in great shape. Everything's going to be fine. Perfectly fine. Now, I've lied to you. I've told you something that's untrue. I've shared with you a false doctrine, a false teaching about your condition and about yourself. Now, this is going to affect how you behave. You're going to behave very differently than if I were to say to you, Lyle, you have cancer in, in your prostate. Here's the options for treatment. Here's what I think we could do. Now, you knowing the truth, are gonna, it's going to totally change how you, how you function, how you act. And so you could liken me telling you a lie and the effect that it has on you to me making you drunk. Yeah, I've because my perception drunk. of reality perception is not of reality. reality is altered. It's not yeah. reality. And then you may act in a way that's harmful to yourself and harmful to others. Mm -hmm. And so to say that, that, that what's doctrinally true is unimportant, I, I think takes a person being very detached from reality. So, and I give you a little example of this. I traveled to Europe before. And I've seen those great cathedrals in Germany and Austria and in England and in Ireland. And I've s they're just magnificent and amazing. And when you walk into those cathedrals, you just think to yourself, whoa, like I feel so close they to God. They are awe-inspiring. This is, this is unbelievable. The mm -hmm. architect, some of these buildings took hundreds of years to build. Um, nothing in the world exists like these things today, you know, these buildings of antiquity. And as beautiful as they are and as amazing as they are, when you go down to the basements of all of those cathedrals, Guess what's there? Dead men's bones. Torture instruments. Oh, I torture in oh, Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I went to this, uh -huh, <laughs> this uh -huh, cathedral uh -huh. in a castle in, in, in Germany. It was one of the most, it's the most beautiful building I've ever stood in in my entire life. Uh -huh. It was in the mountains. It was gorgeous. And then they're like, okay, come downstairs. We're going to go to the second half of the tour. And they have like these instruments where, like, I can't, I, I don't even, I couldn't even say them because I don't want people to even get the pictures of these instruments in their minds. Mm -hmm. They had ovens that they would stick people in for days and slow cook them for like weeks. They have, uh, it was just horrible. Now, just think about this. Why would people in the name of Jesus feel justified and uh, okay with torturing you if you don't accept what they teach and what they tell you to, to practice and believe? Well, it's because they thought that if they could get you to recant from your evil beliefs that they would be saving you from eternal torment in the fiery furnace of hell let's just think about that yeah that's right so for the catholic priest who's torturing their parishioner this is mercy yeah it's mercy like I, i'm gonna i'm gonna torture you for three weeks and this is going to save you from an eternal hellfire. Amount, uh, eternal hellfire now i'm doing the most kind and noble and wonderful thing that could ever be done for you so with a straight face and with a clear conscience i could torture a, a family of people kill children remove people from their property, destroy their lives and crush them, thinking I'm doing God's service. And the, the, the genesis of my thinking and feeling this way was false teaching. It makes people drunk. That's right. So for Adventists who've been committed the oracles of God and doctrinal truth to say, well, yeah, truth doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter. It's like, huh? Yeah. W where are you from? <laughs> what, what? Not to be insulting. And I, and anyways, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic point that you've raised right there. Uh, so I'm going to leave you with the final final word in this podcast. I've said all that stuff about Revelation because I think the book of Revelation is intent. Jesus is intent on highlighting how important right doctrine is. Absolutely. How important, because he doesn't want to be misrepresented and he doesn't want people in the world to be drunk and therefore in his name torturing people for a thousand years. So if the church had never incorporated false doctrine, then it wouldn't have tortured people for a thousand years and the world wouldn't hate Christianity right now. You know what my favorite chapter in the book of Revelation is? Yes. Revelation chapter 20. Okay. You know why? No. I don't see any, and this is just me, I don't see any other chapter that reveals more about the character of God than Revelation 20. So the latter half of chapter 19 through 20, 21 verse 1, the whole millennium scenario where you've got before the thousand years, during the thousand years, at the end of the thousand years... God's master plan of ensuring that sin never comes back. You know, and some people would say, oh, you're teaching all of this doctrine. 
No, this is all about Jesus Christ. This is all about the character of God. This is all about the great controversy. This is all about a God of love ensuring that the universe is cleansed from sin again. You know, I meet I many people and their, and their favorite chapter might be 21 or 22 where it talks about the new earth and heaven and all that kind of stuff. And I get that and it's like, yeah, that's great. Uh, you have whichever favorite chapter you want or don't have one at all. It doesn't bother me. I'm just sharing where I'm coming from. And I'm sh- the reason I'm sharing it is to highlight that when you understand that there's a judgment that takes place in open court mm-hmm. before Jesus comes back. So the whole universe... You know, there's no shred of doubt anywhere in the universe that, that God is good and God is righteous and God is just. Yes. And then because that has to happen before Jesus comes back, which means that, you know, naturally we missed out. Yes. He does it again during the thousand years. And then you've got the wickedness like, well, you know what? They were all condemned, but they didn't have their opportunity to speak for themselves. Maybe they've got something to say for themselves. Maybe... Mate, you know, so let's raise them all back to life again and let's them give them the opportunity to speak, speak in their defense. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's the record of your life. What have you got to say? You know, and when, they, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God and the wicked do that. Yes. You know, it's God's absolute thoroughness in ensuring that sin will never, ever return. It just inspires me. I, I just don't see any other passage in the book of Revelation that shows the love of God and the character of God more clearly than that. Yes. And I just want to use that as, a, as an illustration right here to show how that the character of God is central to every doctrine of the book of Revelation and that the prophetic message that we have is the message that God has given us for our time because it is all about a vindication of the character of God. Powerful. So I guess I would just say in, in closing, thank you everyone for listening to us. I hope that you were blessed and inspired to in the future, not to put an arbitrary distinction between things that God does not. Like there is no tension or conflict between Jesus and uplifting him and the fundamental truths of scripture. They're one beautiful package that God delivers to us. And um, so on the one hand, um, vague, generic versions of a nameless, faithless, faceless Jesus, yeah, don't, don't, don't really help us. There's no power in that. There's no, there's no substance to that. Just, just saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus a lot doesn't make you Jesus-centered any more than saying Matt, Matt, Matt a lot means that you and I have a meaningful relationship with each other. Um, on the other hand, we don't want dry, formal, fact-based religion. We want living, real, authentic Christianity that's informed uh, by the fundamental teachings of Scripture. As you said, so what God teaches, teaches us about God, and it warns us and it keeps us safe and it makes us better it sanctifies us jesus says uh if you continue in my word you will be my disciples indeed and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth and so the fundamental truths of scripture have an elevating power a sanctifying power they make us better and they they keep us from being drunk and deluded and confused by satanic forces and we learn more about the character of god Hey, uh, Lyle, thanks, dude, for joining me. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it's, amazing. it's been awesome. It's great to talk. God bless you guys as you preach the everlasting gospel, and you do not separate anymore what God does not. God bless you. Take care. Bye.